Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to uh, open up to the book of Titus. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're beginning a new series this morning in the book of Titus called uh, Blueprint for Godliness. And uh, we're in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Uh, so let's um, read those together and then consider uh, what our holy God would have to say to us this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's one of those little books that takes a minute or two to find, isn't it? Let's hear the word of our living God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Uh, let's pray just as we come before God's Word. <coughs> Father, we come before you, uh, one who is holy, holy, holy. We pray that you would, in these moments, humble our hearts before you, that you would make us teachable, and that you would give us the help we need to obey these things. Thank you for your revealing yourself to us, Father for the mercy and the grace and the peace which can be ours in Christ. Help us to encounter him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start by asking you how you used to answer the question, or maybe how you answer that now, if you're a bit younger amongst us. What did you want to be when you grew up? What did you want to be when you grew up? I think uh, it probably changes for most of it. Us, doesn't it, over time? For me, it was fireman, then soldier, then rugby player. At one point, it was weirdly a dentist, but thankfully, that's not where I ended up. Not that there's anything wrong with being a dentist, by the way. Or maybe as you think now, maybe you're a bit further down the road in life, maybe you think now, what do I want my family members, my friends, my church, my children to remember me for? What do I want them to remember me for? And maybe as a church, as we approach our second birthday in a, in a couple of weeks' time, what do we want to be when we grow up? What do we want to be as a church when we grow up? What kind of people, what kind of church do we want to be in? And how will we get there? Well, the book of Titus, which we are in this morning, is all about God's plan for believers and for his church. It's where he wants them to get to. It's, it's how he's going to get them there. You could think of it as a sermon series title suggests, as a, it's a blueprint. It's a blueprint for our lives and for our church. It's a blueprint for building a godly life and church. Titus answers the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do, do we want to be as a church when we grow up with the, the answer of godliness? Godliness. That's what God wants us to be when we grow up. That's what he wants his church to be, be as it grows up, godly. 
So if you're a Christian here this morning, godliness is the goal that God has for your life. How do you get there? What does that godliness look like in everyday life? Well, that's what Titus is going to unpack. As a church, godliness is something we are to be as a people. It's the heart of, it's at the heart of our mission and our purpose as a, as a church. So Titus has a lot to say about how we function and live that out as a church, how we cultivate godliness amongst us. Just on a personal note, Titus is kind of close to my heart, our hearts as a church. That's the book that we walked through way back in early 2021 as we began to kind of cast a vision and dream about the kind of church we want it to be. Back in Francis and Deborah's cafe, just off the back of COVID, a number of people in this room were beginning to walk through the book of Titus and consider what it would look like to be not just godly people, but a godly church. And it's really a timely book for us as a church as well as we begin to grow up as we enter our third year of ministry. What does it look like to grow up as a church? What does it look like to be godly as a church? Titus has a lot to say about all of that. And it also has a lot to say about how godliness serves our witness. This is not just an internal book. This is a book that impacts our town and our society and our world through being godly. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, it also speaks to you. Let me ask you what the goal of your life is. Maybe you feel you don't have purpose in life or what you dreamed your life would be about hasn't worked out. Let me invite you to consider what a godly life looks like. To see how being a godly follower of Jesus is the the best way to live, not just now, but eternally. To see how Jesus can transform your life and show you abundant grace. So the big response this morning from this passage then is this, make godliness that flows from gospel truth our goal. Make godliness that flows from gospel truth our goal. First thing these verses call us to as a church, we are called to firstly serve Jesus. That's what we see in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you know anything about the apostle Paul, he used to be someone who persecuted Christians. Yet in Acts chapter 9, we see how his life was dramatically changed and converted by God. He then went on to give his whole life to the spread of the gospel as far and as wide as he could. And he did this alongside other people like Titus. And he writes to Titus now because Paul is very aware that he's coming to the end of his ministry and life. And in this letter, he's passionately and urgently seeking to ensure that that good news continues to spread to future generations, that it continues to spread around the globe. He longs for the ministry of the gospel to continue beyond himself, and he lays a blueprint in Titus for that, along with other books like First and Second Timothy. And he begins to reveal the blueprint for that ministry to Titus in verse 1. Two big things he reveals here in verse 1, the nature of ministry and its authority. Notice how Paul describes himself. First of all, he is a servant of God. That's the first way he chooses to describe himself. He speaks here to the nature of the Christian life, to Christian ministry. That's how Jesus described his ministry on this earth. That's how Paul described his ministry. That's how we should consider ourselves as followers of Jesus. We are servants. We are servants of God. We are to sacrifice for the sake of others in order to spread the gospel. When's the last time you thought of yourself that way? 
He speaks to the nature of ministry, of Christian life. He also speaks to the authority of the Christian life. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is identifying himself here along with the 12 disciples and perhaps some others who are considered apostles in a unique and authoritative sense. They are those who have personally seen the risen Lord, have been commissioned by him to spread the gospel, to bring the foundational faith and teaching of the church to bear. They've laid a foundation. The apostles have laid a foundation. They've delivered the faith once for all to the saints in their teaching. And that is a teaching that we are to devote ourselves to, to build our lives on, to declare and defend and display in our town and in our world. We are not uh, apostles in the sense that Paul was, of course, but we are in one sense messengers and ambassadors for Christ. We are messengers and ambassadors of this authoritative teaching of God's Word. And our ambassadorship, our ministry, is based on an authority. The authority of Jesus himself and of his apostles. That's meant to give us, it was meant to give Titus, assurance and confidence in ministry. That should give us confidence personally for our own faith. It's based on historically attested teaching from both Jesus and the apostles. Verse 1 is our foundation. That should spur us on then as a church and individuals. Why? Because we are sent out to declare and to defend an authoritative message. It's not weak. It's been attested historically. We are sent out to declare and defend a sufficient message. The foundation has been laid. The faith has been delivered. We are sent out to declare and defend a message that is effective. It's built the church. It's building the church. It does things. That's Titus's confidence. That's our confidence. So we are servants who are sent out on an authoritative, sufficient, and effective foundation. Servants and ambassadors, that's how we're to view ourselves. That's how we're to approach the Christian life. That's how we're to approach ministry, which, by the way, we're all called to, Ephesians 4, in different ways, yes, as we thought about a few weeks ago, but we're all called to the work of ministry. We do so as servants based on an authoritative foundation. That's the nature of our ministry. That, therefore, what, what now is the goal of our ministry? That's the nature, the authority of our ministry. What's now the goal of our ministry? Well, it's godliness. That's the second thing we see. As a church, we're called to serve Jesus for godliness. That's the second half of verse 1. If you look down, Paul, a, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Titus, this is what this is all about. This is what we give our lives to. This is why we're spending ourselves. This is why we're sacrificing ourselves for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's what we're aiming for. That's why we're doing this. All that we do is so that people would come to saving faith in Jesus through knowledge of the truth and that that truth and faith would lead to a godly life. Here you see the goal. Let's unpack faith. What is faith? Faith is forsaking our sin and trusting in Jesus. One kind of acronym I grew up with, which I shared with someone recently, I've always found helpful, faith, forsaking all 
I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. Faith is choosing to say no to, no, to, say, to no longer say no to God, to ask forgiveness for our sin, to trust in Christ who lived the life we could never live, who died the death we deserve to die in order to purchase us the gift of eternal life that we can never afford. Saving faith is accepting, receiving, and resting. Let me say that again. Saving faith is accepting, receiving, and then resting upon Christ alone for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Beginning to end, Him alone, resting in Him, trusting in Him. So if your faith is in Jesus, rejoice in that. Rest in what He has done for you. If it's not, then come to Him today. Choose to stop saying no to God and turn to Him in faith. His forgiveness is available. Life, eternal life, is on the table. How does that faith come about? It comes about by the Spirit through the knowledge of the truth. It comes about through knowledge of the truth, which at its heart is the good news of Jesus. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And saving faith is, is no small thing. It's a supernatural miracle of the highest order. It's dead people being brought to life. That's what Paul gave his life to. That's what Titus was called to give his life to. That's what we, we get to give our lives to. We get to spend our lives and our energy for the faith of the elect, and specifically for the faith of the elect. Who are the elect? Well, the Bible teaches that the elect are those whom God has lovingly and purposefully chosen for eternal life, not because of any foreseen merit in them, but purely because of his mercy in Christ. And those whom he chooses, those whom he elects, he effectually calls, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. It's what the Bible teaches us in places like Ephesians 8 and Romans 8 to 11 and Acts 13 and many other places. Ephesians 1 is one key place. If you look up on the screen, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. There's the godliness goal again. Shows us that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In a world where no one by nature loves God, no one by nature chooses God, God in his love sent Christ into the world that hated him sent Christ lovingly into a world that hated him to purposefully and graciously give life to and gather a people for himself for all eternity. He didn't have to do that. But God chose in his love to enter in Christ a world that hated him to lovingly give life to and gather a people for himself. So if you've put your faith in Christ, it means you have been lovingly chosen. 
you've been lovingly chosen and, in the words of Ephesians 1, adopted. Your faith is not insignificant. Your faith was not an accident. Because it's all of God, and that also brings us deep security. If that word and that doctrine is new to you, and you want to think more about that, then we have a statement in our doctrinal distinctives which explores that in more detail, or I'm sure uh, there's folks in this church who would love to speak more to you about that. The question, though, the big question is, why does he say that to Titus? And here's where we really press into this. Why does he say that to Titus here? Because he wants to give Titus confidence in his ministry. He wants to give us confidence as we give ourselves to this work of the faith and truth and godliness of God's people. It's a reminder to Titus, to us, that ultimately God will gather his people. This mission is not futile. It's a reminder that people will respond. It's a reminder that only God can open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. Therefore, we must pray as we go about this. It's a reassurance for you and me that even though sometimes it seems like there's certain people who won't come to know him, that God can change anyone. It's reassurance for us as a church as we spend ourselves in this mission, in this call, in the words of Acts 18, to not be afraid, but to go on speaking and not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So as we seek to spread the gospel, as we give ourselves to this calling, we don't need to lose heart. We shouldn't give up. Here is our motivation for mission. God will cause people to respond in repentance and faith. God is at work. God will raise people spiritually from death to life. And also provides us with personal assurance of our own salvation. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And those whom God elects, he will never let go. So initial saving faith comes through knowledge of the truth. But verse 2 also has in mind that we would increase in our knowledge of the truth so that that faith is strengthened and matured. How do we go about that? Well, knowledge of truth really is deeper knowledge of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We want to grow in our knowledge of the truth. We want our faith to be strengthened. We get close to Jesus. We do that in by going to God's Word and spending time with Him in prayer and gathering with His people on all the means that He's appointed. But it's not knowledge for knowledge's sake, okay? It's not enough to just gain head knowledge. It has to do something. It's knowledge about Jesus that will cause us to become more like Him. Or in the words of Paul here, more godly. It's knowledge of Jesus that makes us more like Jesus, That's why he says here, knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, or as some other translations put it, that leads to godliness. Truth, knowledge of the truth is meant to lead to godliness. We see this again if you flip over into chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Faith 
through truth is meant to lead to a changed life. And you see that throughout Titus 2 in the phrase good works really is the same thing as godliness. He uses that term a lot. So godliness is where we want to ultimately get to. It's the outworking of our faith. Godliness, to put it in other terms, is we already have a category for godliness. It's being holy. It's being changed. It's becoming mature. It's becoming more like Jesus. That's God's desire and design for our lives. As humans, we were made in the image of God. Sin ruined that. But God is now at work to remake us in the image of Christ. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And ultimately, that is becoming what we were always made to be. So to become godly, to pursue godliness, is to become the most human we can be. It's to be truly happy. It's to be truly fulfilled. That's why we should pursue godliness. That's what we were created to be. So, if you have faith, rejoice in it. Rest in Jesus. Seek to strengthen it through increasing knowledge of Christ and his teaching. Increase your knowledge for the sake of becoming more like him and ask the Spirit to apply the truth of Scripture to your heart and change you. As a church, we, have to, we must give ourselves confidently to shepherd people towards saving faith. We get to do that as a church. We, we get to help one another increase in that knowledge. It's not something we're meant to do alone. And we need one another to grow in godliness. It's not a solo project. It's a community project. And we get to do all this in the context of hope. That's the third thing we see. As a church, we're called to serve Jesus for godliness in hope. If you look down at verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Notice it doesn't say with hope. Okay, we do this and we've got some hope. We do this in hope. We already have hope. We do it in the context of hope. We live our Christian lives and give ourselves to this as a church in hope. What is that hope? It's the hope of eternal life. That's what verse 2 tells us. Where did it come from? From God who never lies. When did that hope appear? Well, it appeared well before any of us were born. Before the ages began. It's a hope that was promised before the world began, but then was manifested in the coming of Christ. What verse 2 tells us here is, that what we are called to give our lives to, what we're called to do as a church, the, the mission and the ministry that we're part of, is an eternal thing. We are joining in with, through our own faith and participation in this mission, with an eternal plan. One that began before time, one that will last into eternity. We are giving ourselves to something that brings life, eternal life. So we enter into this incredible, eternal story of redemption that gives eternal life. And how can we have certainty about doing that? Because it's based on the truth. It's based on the promises of a God who does not lie. That's what we get to be part of. 
our seemingly sometimes insignificant lives in the day-to-day rhythms of everyday life and weeks, what we are and what we are part of as a church is something eternal that began from before time began and will last into eternity. That's what we're part of. That's what we've been saved into. That's what we get to give our lives to. That's what we get to offer people. An eternal hope promised by a God who never lies. And how do we know he doesn't lie? Okay, someone might think, give me proof. Jesus. How do we know God doesn't lie? Ultimate proof is Jesus. In his love and commitment from before the world began, God planned to send Jesus, and he did that in historical time and space. He sent Jesus, whom he had promised, into the world to save us. God keeps his promises in Jesus. That's how we can know he doesn't lie. 2 Timothy chapter 1 kind of says similar things about this. It's up on the screen for you, this kind of eternal plan that God has promised and brought about in Christ. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, okay? We don't enter into this salvation story, this eternal story by works, but purely because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you see what you're a part of? Do you see what God has graciously drawn you into? Do you see what we get to hold out in front of people? Our hope, our faith is part of something eternal that began before us that now includes us, and that has altered our eternity. It means our salvation and glorification is all of God. That's what these verses are saying, which is good news for sinful people like you and me, and for Christians who still struggle with sin, and for those whose faith is fragile. God is ultimately doing all of this. It's a hope and a faith that leads to eternal life, Our salvation was not an afterthought by God. It was promised, planned, and fulfilled in Jesus, and it's not based on a lie. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus confirms that, so rejoice. As a church, then, we too are part of this cosmic plan, which God God himself is bringing to completion. The church is at the center of that plan. That's what we get to give our lives to. That's what Paul and Titus give their lives to something of eternal significance and eternal urgency. And this is what we get to hold out in front of people. We get to bring into people's everyday lives, often very difficult everyday lives, an eternal promise that leads to eternal life from a God who does not lie. That's what we get to give people. That's what we get to offer them. If you're not a Christian here this morning, That's what's on offer for you in the gospel. Here is real hope, certain hope, which brings us joy and purpose in the present and changes our eternity. Where do we find that hope? How do we actually hold out to people? That's the fourth thing we see, with God's word. As a church, we're called to serve Jesus for godliness in hope, 
with God's Word. Verse 3, if you look down, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We might expect Paul to say something similar to what he did in, in 2 Timothy, right? Uh, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in Jesus. But he says here, in his word, because now that Jesus has physically ascended, how are we to encounter him? How are we to encounter the hope that God's promises promises us. Well, we encounter it now in this age in His Word. In God's Word, we encounter that promise of eternal life. In God's Word, we encounter Jesus Himself, because in God's Word, Jesus is speaking by His Spirit. He has the words of eternal life. That's where we find this promise now. That's what we hold out to people this book, this word. This is Jesus' words of eternal life. That's what we were to hold out to people. And how does that word, how does that word get into people's hearts and change their lives? How does the hope of eternal life get into our hearts and change our lives? Verse 3 tells us, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. This word is living and active it needs to be read and proclaimed. God has designed it that this word changes people's lives through the preaching and the teaching and the proclamation of this word. Again, Romans 10, which we thought about a while ago. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching to them? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means for salvation and transformation. Proclamation. And yes, this time here that we're sitting in and which I'm doing here, this is God's design for our primary diet, so to speak. But in our reading and in our everyday sharing and in our everyday proclamation, this is how God presents people with the promise of eternal life. Through that reading, through that preaching, Jesus speaks the words of eternal life. I always find uh, this quote by Martin Luther, the reformer, really helpful. It kind of speaks to what's going on when God's word is proclaimed and read and preached. I preach the gospel, he says, I preach the gospel of Christ, and with my bodily voice, I bring Christ into your heart so that you might hear from him within yourself. we get to tell people what Jesus says to them, what Jesus offers them, the promise of eternal life. So how do we hear and encounter the hope of Jesus, not just for the first time, but on an ongoing basis in his word? So read it, digest it, treasure it, memorize it. Sit under the sound preaching of God's word. God has designed it, that our primary diet, the primary way that we are fed God's Word is through the preaching of His Word in the context of the gathered church. So we starve our hope and our faith when we neglect that. 
Consider what this means then for your own time, personal time, reading God's Word. Consider how it shapes that and and changes that. Consider how it should shape how you approach the Word preached. We hear Father, Son, and Spirit proclaim the promise of eternal life to us. We are convicted, we are converted, we are changed, we're built up, we're transformed in that moment. That's what His Word does. It changes us. It gives life to us. It breathes life into us by the Spirit. Rejoice that God has revealed that promise, that hope to us. Rejoice that you have a copy of God's Word in our language sitting in front of you right now. How much we take that for granted. The words of eternal life that Jesus has for us are right here. Rejoice that we don't need to go looking for new experiences or novel ways to encounter God, you and I, if we want to come into the very presence of God, if we want to hear the Father speak about the Son by the Spirit, we have God's Word. Perhaps you doubt His Word, or maybe those around you doubt that it's true, or maybe sometimes in our Christian lives we doubt His promises, we doubt the reliability of Scripture, Titus 1 reminds us, consider who breathed that out. Consider who breathed that word out. A God who not just never lies, but God's word tells us cannot lie. He cannot lie. We can trust his word. These verses teach us then that we need to hold this word out to people who don't know him. This is how they will hear. This is how they will come to faith. It means that as a church, the Bible must be central to all that we do. Here are the words of eternal life. It means too, as verse 3 tells us, that we must entrust this word. We must entrust this word to one another and to future generations. Don't miss that part. Here is a huge part of our ministry, of our church, of our family life, of our friendships, We must pass on the gospel baton and God's word well. We must pass it on to future generations. We must invest in them. We as a church must train and raise up people who can teach this word. We must equip everyone for the work of ministry, which all ministry is essentially word ministry. We must give ourselves to that. It doesn't happen by mistake. It's hard work. It takes time in the church at home, it's easily neglected. Consider the spiritual state of our homes in this town, in our country. Consider the state of the churches of our country. With exception, of course, this work of of entrusting has not been done well. That's why we're in the state that we're in. This work of entrusting has not been done well. Loved ones, we must do better. We must do better. We can do better. We do that in the knowledge that God is at work, but we must entrust God's word, not just to our own hearts and to the hearts of those around us, but to future generations, and do that well, and do that deeply, and have substantial conversations about what we believe and how that works itself out in this world. We can't afford not to. We can't afford not to. And we must do all of this, verse 3. Why? Because we are commanded to. We are commanded to. We're commanded to do this, and because people need a Savior. 
have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. We and the world need to be saved from sin and death. God does that by sending Jesus. We must teach this word and entrust it to others. So we're to serve Jesus for godliness, in hope, with God's word. And we don't do that alone. We do that together from a common faith. That's the last thing we see. So church, we're called to serve Jesus for godliness, in hope, with God's word, from a common faith. Verse 4, if you look down, he finishes the introduction off. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Two key things in this last verse he wants us to grasp, family and faith. Paul speaks of Titus in spiritual terms as a son. He speaks of him as family, doesn't he? As a son. And the thing which forms a family is their common faith. So his call here to Titus, to us, is to, to continue on the mission of spreading the gospel. It's not some kind of cold clinical job description here. It's the loving and passionate call of a father to his son to carry on the gospel baton for the sake of people's eternities. It's a loving, passionate call of a father to his son saying, give your life to this. Carry this baton on. It will cost you. It will be hard work, but people's eternities are at stake. You must give your life to this. And that's a call we're included in as a church. And the thing which creates that family, which forms the basis of our service and our ministry, is our common faith. The commentator Robert Yarbrough in, in, in his commentary on Titus says this, the glue binding Paul and Titus is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the common faith which we are to proclaim, but that also binds us in our walk with Jesus and in our ministry. What is that faith? Well, it's the core beliefs of Christianity that are contained in the Bible and which have been historically summarized helpfully in places like the Apostles and Nicene Creed. But Paul doesn't leave us wondering what that faith is. He himself gives us the heart of that faith in verse 4. See, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the heart of our common faith. This is what we are to proclaim. God the Father in love sent Jesus his Son to save us from our sins. This brings peace between us and God. For at one time we were enemies, remember? Brings peace. Why did God do this? Because of his grace. God's grace is his undeserved favor. Grace is a big theme in Titus, as we'll see as we go along. It's what saves us, but grace is also what changes us. And it's appropriate that Paul finishes his introduction this way, reminds us personally, like it did for Titus, that we are saved by grace, and therefore our call to godliness and ministry is from a place of grace forgiveness, peace. We don't have to earn that. It reminds us that faith in Jesus joins us to one another as family, as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. It reminds us that we don't walk with Jesus alone. 
as a church, it reminds us that we have a common faith. We have so much in common. A common faith which creates a family. A common faith which connects us not just with the people in this room, but with the churches, church in all ages and in all times. It connects us with Paul. It connects us with Titus. It connects us with something much bigger than ourselves, something eternal. So we must hold to that common faith. We must hold to that common faith. We, we must declare it with clarity and faithfulness and urgency. An art, there's an article came out this week in The Spectator uh, titled this, by, written by someone who's not a Christian. It was an article titled Inside the Fastest Growing and Shrinking Churches in the UK. It's been doing the rounds this week on social media. The author of the article says this, thriving churches, so churches in the UK that are not dying but are thriving, are very intentional about what they do. They are very clear in their beliefs, particularly about the urgency of accepting Christ since one's eternal destiny is at stake. Someone who's not a Christian identifies that, can see that the churches that are growing are ones who are clear in their beliefs and proclaim the urgency of accepting Christ since one's eternal destiny is at stake. Isn't that what Paul is telling Titus to do? Isn't that what we are being called to? to declare our faith, our common faith, with urgency and clarity and faithfulness. He then goes on to say, we are to, the churches that are thriving do that rather than the ones who get together and say, well, everybody here believes something and we're, we're not really sure what it is, but here we can always put on an event and maybe somebody will come along. Churches that do that are dying and are dead. We must hold to our common faith and live by that and proclaim it. The same, in the same article, the author also speaks of visiting a church that's thriving. He says this, Moreover, the service has the feeling of a family reunion. They laugh, they greet, they hug, and they welcome. As a dogmatic Catholic of the old school, I'm not seeking answers to the big questions, but if I was, I think this would be a good place to look holding to our common faith, not compromising, holding to it, declaring it, and living it out in a way that is family is how our town will best see that believing the gospel and pursuing godliness is the most significant and the most important thing that they could ever decide in their lives. It declares that to ourselves as well, doesn't it? That's what we get to do. That's what we're called to do. So, make godliness that flows from gospel truth your goal. How do you want to grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to give the rest of your life to? Godliness. Godliness that flows from gospel truth. The truth that in Jesus we can be saved and forever changed. So, let's pursue that together with urgency, with clarity. Let's give our lives to that based on His grace and peace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. Father, thank you for that undeserved favor which you have shown us, which you have promised before the ages began, and which you've revealed in Jesus. Help us to rest in that. Help us to cling to that by faith. 
Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. And Father, help us to live godly lives. Father, we recognize we come to you this morning as those who often mess up. Even in this past hour, two hours this morning, Father, we've messed up. Please forgive us. Please change us. Help us to become more godly and help us to give our lives to proclaim this truth, to proclaim this faith together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the gospel truth that's been given to us in God's word will not fail. It will not fail. Do you know that truth? Are you giving your life to declare and live out that truth? That's what we're called to. We're called to do that based on the grace and peace of Jesus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Know this this morning, that in Jesus you are loved.